0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. And in terms of people as well, there's no such thing as a clean person or an unclean person anymore because of what Jesus did. We can all be clean. And so that's chapter 11, verse 18. And that's where we're going to start right here. It says, when they heard about these things, about Peter and his dream and going to Cornelius, all that stuff, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then we launch into these next verses. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, I've got a a map back here that we can throw up um, to kind of show you these areas because you're gonna hear these city names and I'm just visual, it helps me see where they are. But we heard earlier that there was persecution that arose because of Stephen and there's this great scattering of all the believers at this time throughout the known world. And we heard a story of Philip, he goes south and Philip goes and meets this Ethiopian and we see the word traveling south. But here in the end of chapter 11, we hear about the word traveling north. To places like Cyprus and Cyrene and Phoenicia, all the way up to Antioch, which I have in the circle. So the church kind of started out in Jerusalem, which is in the square down there, and then it moves up to this circle in this chapter. So we see it moving north. So it says they did this, but they spoke to no one except for the Jews. So word of Peter's dream and all of that hasn't happened yet. But it says that there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so right there we hear just a little bit of what is happening, that now we have people also talking to the Hellenists. And there's parts in the New Testament. Earlier we talked about the Hellenists in terms of the distribution and all of that, the, the widows getting fed and how there were Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. But here most people think that Hellenist refers to just culturally Greek people non-Jewish Greek people. So there's some that aren't talking about Jesus to anybody but the Jewish people, but then there's these others that get to Antioch and they start talking about Jesus to people that are not Jewish, to people of other cultures. And then we get this little tidbit a little bit later about Antioch and what happens in Antioch. And it says that in Antioch, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 25 or 26, it says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians, So this city Antioch, something significant happens here in Christianity, but we need to know a little bit about the city. It was a port city, which you might have noticed on the map. It's on the coast. So people from Arabia, from China, from Rome, from Persia, all over from India, they're all collecting in this port area to trade goods and to sell goods. So Antioch was a multicultural hub. You would have gone there and seen many different people uh, different from yourself. You would have heard many different languages. You would have heard many different political ideals. All of this was happening in Antioch. And then these Christians make their way to Antioch, and it says that the disciples, for the first time, they're referred to as Christians in Antioch. And so, up to this point, this is crazy, there was no name for the followers of Jesus. They kind of would describe themselves as being followers of the way. Going off of things, Jesus said, and the way, the truth, the life, and just the idea of this is the way to go. They called it the way, but they never sat down and and said, like, we need to have a meeting. We need to come up with a brand, and we need to figure out what our brand is and name it this. Let's name it after Jesus. It's other people, the people in Antioch, that came up with this name, Christians. And so in this multicultural hub, we hear about this idea of of the name of the church happening. Most scholars think that this was 45 AD, so we're just 15 years after Jesus. And these people call it Christianity, or in Latin it would have been Christianoi, which was kind of like, kind of a play on words in their mind. Um, it was kind of them being a little bit snarky, the, the Antiochans just kind of goofing on the Christians a little bit, because this, this term, annoy, putting annoy at the end of a word, you'd usually put it at the end of a name. So people that followed Herod would be Herodianoi. So that'd be the idea of like, you're like a slave of Herod or you're a follower of Herod or those that followed Caesar would be Caesarea Noi. So you'd put a Noi at the end of a person's name. And so they did this kind of goofing on the fact like like these people are following this guy Christ as like a king. And you kind of realize they don't realize that Christ is a title and not a name. And so they're like this Christ guy, they're following him, they're Christ the Noi, they're Christians. And that's how it came about. So the origination of this this term, I don't think it should be lost on us. The origination of Christianity is kind of rooted politically. People were looking at it in the same way that they looked at other political movements. They saw these people are following this guy Christ as their king. Let's call them Christians. Let's call them followers of this guy. And this is what happens. The, The church gets its name in Antioch, and they're named after Jesus. And so these people on the outside looking at these Christians, they would have seen some characteristics of them, some characteristics of the church that I think are very apparent in this chapter, in chapter 11 here. So I want to look at these. What are some of these characteristics of Christianity that the people in Antioch would have seen to say, oh, this is one of those Christ followers. This is one of those Christians. What would they have seen? And the first that we see is that they recognize Jesus as King. This was obvious to the people in Antioch that these Christians, they were worshiping this guy, Jesus, in the same way that others would follow a political figure. So the first characteristic we see of Christianity, just the way that these people lived, is that they recognized Jesus as their king. They looked to him as, a, as somebody would look to Caesar. They obeyed his laws as somebody would obey the laws of Herod. Their allegiance lied with Jesus. That's who they answered to. So that's a first characteristic of Christianity that we see is apparent to these people in Antioch. Again, the Christians didn't sit down and say like, well, we need to do A, B, and C. They were just doing what Christ had demonstrated to them and living life in that way. And so as we move a little bit further, let's go back to uh, verse 20. As we move a little bit further, it says, there, there, there were some there, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of the starting hub. That's where everything went down with Jesus. And that's where the disciples, the, the 12 or the 11 now, stayed. And it says, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So when they hear there's people in Antioch coming to Christ, they send Barnabas, one of the followers. And it says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, For he was a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so we hear right here that Barnabas goes down and he sees that more than just Jewish people are coming to Christ. And there's no moment where Barnabas is like, hey, pump the brakes now. Like this has been a Jewish thing. Like it comes out of this Jewish ideal. He sees in this multicultural area where people are speaking different languages, people of different languages, people of different heritage coming to Christ, and he's celebrating that. It says that he was glad, and he sees that Jesus was doing this, that the Holy Spirit led a great number of the people to Jesus in Antioch. And so right here, I think we begin to see a second characteristic of Christianity, and that is that Christianity is borderless. There is no border. There is no one culture or nation that Jesus belongs to. Christianity is borderless. And this begins to happen in Antioch. We see that as the gospel begins traveling north, it's not just traveling geographically, it's also traveling culturally to other cultures. More and more people are coming into the fold of Christ as they hear about this man, Jesus. And so characteristics we have of Christianity that become apparent in Antioch is that one, Christ is king, and two, Christianity is borderless. If we looked at Christianity as a nation, this nation that Jesus is ruler over has no boundary. It should be a global nation. It's not even, really nation's probably a bad term for it, just kingdom would be better, right? And it's not a national kingdom, it's a global kingdom for people of different languages, people of different heritage. And this is huge. And I don't think we should miss this. Like we can kind of just read this through like really quick, but this is a huge thing to be happening in the Bible, but also for humanity. And in order to kind of figure out why it's such a big deal, we got to go way back. we got to go all the way back to Genesis. So if you've got a Bible and you need to flip to Genesis with me, go to Genesis 11. And you probably know this story. It's early, early on in the history of humanity. It's after the ark and all of that has happened, the great flood. But in Genesis 11, it tells us this. The whole earth had one language, the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found the plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly, And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And so they construct what the Bible refers to as the Tower of Babel. And you probably know how the rest of the story goes as God sees it and he says, humankind, they can't be doing this. And so God splits them by languages. He gives them working on this tower different languages and then they can't communicate anymore to build this tower. And then they kind of group off into their different nations. And that's how nations and cultures begin to emerge according to the Bible. And we look at that and say, well, like, why would God do that? Like, why would God be angry about humans working together? Isn't teamwork an ideal? Well, I think the clue is there in their intentions in building this tower. And they say, let us make a name for ourselves. It wasn't let us make a name for God. It was let us make a name for us. Let us celebrate us. Scholars think the tower they're building was most likely a ziggurat, which was kind of an old school temple where people would worship a God. And it seems like maybe they just wanted to worship themselves. They wanted to worship humanity. And so God splits them up. So we see these different nations form. We see humanity become fragmented at the Tower of Babel. Babel, a city that is forever referred to in the Bible henceforth as Babylon. A city that is referred to, a country that's referred to as a corrupt and pagan nation, starts right here at the Tower of Babel. Then a little bit later, the next chapter over, We see God communicate with a man named Abraham and make these promises to Abraham. And this is where the Hebrew nation begins. And God says to this one guy, Abraham, I'll make you a great nation and bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and dishonor those who who dishonor you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And from that comes the Hebrew nation. From that comes the Israelites, the Jewish people. And as we go through the Bible, we see that they love this promise to Abraham about their nation, right? That I'll make you a great nation. But they kind of glaze over that last part of all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. And they kind of got nationally focused and lost the global focus that was God's point. Until we get all the way up to the first century and we see everything happening with Jesus and the the Jewish people meeting Jesus and having to decide, like, wait a minute, This promise to Abraham was not just about us, not just about the Jewish people, it was for everybody. So what we see in chapter 11 of Acts is the curse of Babel begins coming undone. The curse of Babel where everyone was fragmented and it was all about your language, your nation, that begins coming undone as the word about Jesus travels to these other nations. The curse of Babel comes undone and the promise to Abraham begins to be realized this promise that Jesus wanted to be a blessing for the whole earth. So Christianity is to be recognizing Christ as king, and it's to be borderless. It is a borderless movement. It is a borderless kingdom. Then as we move a little bit further, we see that Barnabas goes there, and he meets up with Paul. He starts looking around at Tarsus for Paul, and it says that he finds Paul. He brings him to Antioch, and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was during this time that the name uh, was first applied to the disciples of Christians. Then verse 27 tells us now, in those days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, which is a great biblical name like that never gets passed on. Any pregnant people out there, Agabus, I submit to you for a name. Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world that took place in the days of Claudius. Now, when Luke is talking about this, we can look back in history. There's no like one worldwide famine, but there were several famines all over the world. And so Luke describes that as saying there's a great famine all over the world. And it says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Saul, who the Bible later refers to as Paul. They begin collecting this offering in Antioch on foreign soil and sending it back to the believers in Jerusalem who were suffering under famine. Isn't that crazy? And as we go through the New Testament, we see that this drives Paul. Every letter Paul writes, he starts talking about this collection. Everywhere that Paul goes, he's not just planting churches, but he begins collecting for the believers that are in need. And so the third thing we see appear, the third characteristic of Christianity is that it is generous. There's no point where they like have this meeting and they're like, well, we we gotta be worried. Like if famine comes to us, we gotta start saving for us. They say, no, let's collect so that we can help them. Christianity is not greedy. It is not selfish. It is generous. And so we have these three characteristics of Christianity, of this movement. Recognizing Jesus as king, being a borderless kingdom, and being a generous kingdom. Those are the three things that should identify Christianity. It's what the the people in Antioch saw, and it's what should be demonstrated in us if we want to call ourselves Christians also. We should be people that look at Jesus as king. We should live as if we are a borderless people with allegiance only to God and his kingdom, and we should be a generous people. And in the same way, the opposite of that would be true. The moment we start looking to something else as our king, the moment we start answering to someone else for our direction, for what we do in life, we're not living as a Christian. The moment we start celebrating borders more than we're celebrating what Jesus wants to do in our world, we're no longer living as a Christian. The moments we celebrate greed and selfishness, we're no longer living by the ideals of the Christian kingdom because we are to be a people that recognizes Jesus as king, recognizes his nation as our nation, and, and as a generous people. And so we have to be very careful that we don't get those things confused with anything else, that we know what it means to be a Christian. It means to live as if we have Jesus as king, live as if we have no border but the kingdom of Christ, and live as generous people. Romans 10 brings us home. Romans 10, 11 through 13, Paul writes us. It says, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew or Greek. And that's who the people he was dealing with thought of right then, the Jewish people and the Greek people, two different cultures. We could easily put in any nation we wanted to right there. There's no difference between rich or poor. There's no difference between male or female in other places. There's no difference between slave or free. There's no difference between American, Canadian, African, Antarctican. Is Antarctican even a nation? I don't think so. There's no difference in that. He's saying, when it comes to Jesus, nations and borders are not recognized for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we champion generosity, we champion God's ideals. When we champion uh, this, when we see humanity as going beyond just borders, going beyond just what is my kingdom, my stuff, my nation, we begin seeing the kingdom of God on this earth when we champion the things of God, the things that God wants to see happen in our globe, we are living under the Christian ideals of his kingdom. When we live more to what the Bible calls us to, we live more as geese in the skein than geese in the gaggle, right? When we are living just the way that the world tries to live, the way that people that don't know Jesus try to live, we're the gaggle, right? We begin getting selfish. We begin getting worried about what is mine, my nation, my borders, my stuff. We begin getting worried about, like, other earthly kings. Like, I think this guy's got it going on. Like, this guy has the right way. I'm going to follow this person on TV, not that person on that TV. I'm in this camp, not that camp. And then we get into a real gaggle, right? Just a a gang fight between geese. But when we can get beyond that, and I think we can only get beyond that by living by the ideals of Jesus' kingdom, then we begin to work together and we can see that geese, that, that skein of geese flying in the sky. Let me give you an example of where I think we've seen a little bit of this: uh, humans as a skein and not a gaggle. Uh, last month, this picture came out. We've got it on the back screen. This picture came out, the first ever photograph of a black hole. And it's a little bit out of focus. If you can just kind of see that lightish area there, that's supposed to be the black hole. But apparently, like, I didn't even know this, like, was a a feat. Like, many people just thought, like, this was an impossibility, that it would be impossible to photograph this thing. But they were able to photograph this through the Event Horizon Telescope, which I think of telescope just like that one thing when you're a kid, like, looking out your bedroom window. Like, this telescope was several different telescopes all over the globe, and they're like radio telescopes, all pointed at the same area. It took over 60, or I'm sorry, over 40 countries and regions all pointing at the same place to get this photograph together. Catherine Bowman was the person who came up with the formula for this and spearheaded the team um, that, that came up with this image, and she said this. She said, the image shown today is the combination of images produced by multiple methods. No one algorithm or person made this image. It required the amazing talent of a team of scientists from around the globe and years of hard work to develop the instruments, data processing, imaging methods, and analysis technologies, I can't even pronounce most of the words she's talking about, that were necessary to pull off this seemingly impossible feat. Humanity at its best can pull off amazing feats. So that was in the news last month. Something else was in the news last month on the opposite end of the spectrum. It was the 25-year anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, which you may remember hearing about this in school or, or growing up. If you were born in that time, it has been the worst bloodshed that humanity has seen since Hitler's concentration camps. It happened in 1994. Over the course of 100 days, 800,000 people or more were killed. And it was kind of a war, an attack between the Hutu people and the Tutsi people. These are two people groups that lived on the same land, were neighbors with each other. They spoke the same language, and for most people, would look exactly the same. But years and years of racism and hatred built up between these two people, and at one point, it just hit a tipping point, and mass murder happened all over. Last month, it was in the news again because of the anniversary, but also because they've been finding mass graves here 25 years later. They're still finding the mass graves Of these people apparently when these murders were done some people dug large pits 25-foot-deep pits and threw the bodies down in these pits and then quickly erected houses over the spots to hide these graves and now they're finding these graves and and locals call them black holes or black pits and this picture here all that they can really find that would identify anybody from these remains is the clothing And so there's areas like the one pictured there where people can go through the clothes that they've discovered in these pits and try and find the remains of their family members that disappeared 25 years ago and finally have closure on sisters and brothers and children and relatives. That's humanity at its worst. We see the two opposite ends. When humanity can work together, we can create beautiful, impossible things. But when we begin fighting We can do terribly destructive, horrifying things. And yet the ideal of the Christian kingdom is that we would be a borderless kingdom. The ideal of Christianity is that we would be generous to one another, not fighting against one another. And the only reason we can do this is because Jesus spread out his arms on the cross and died for all of humanity, not just for me, not just for you, but for our entire globe so that we could come together under him. And so we see these kind of bookends in the Bible. We see the bookend of the curse of Babel. But then on the other end of the spectrum in Revelation, we see this right here. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 through 10. John is given a vision of the end of time in the realm of heaven and he says this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb. We know that to be Jesus. And he's clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That is what all of history is moving towards. That is our future. And it's so far from the Tower of Babel where we're worshiping ourselves and because of our self-worship, we're then split into different nations and kingdoms and camps. So we have these two, the curse of Babel and then the throne of the Lamb, two bookends for humanity. And there in the middle, we see Acts chapter 11 and the beginnings of Christianity, the beginnings of the blood of Christ seeping across borders, seeping into other nations so that more people all over the globe could come to know Christ because that was his vision, that all of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, that all of the earth could be blessed through you and I, through those of us who claim Christ as king. Because of our generosity, because we say, I don't don't look at nations and borders. I just look at people that need Jesus because I needed Jesus. And he was generous enough to die for me, to bring me into his family. And I want to see his family span the globe. So as we move to a time of communion today, I want that thought to be in our heads. Which side of this spectrum are you on? Are you closer to the ideals of the Tower of Babel, the kingdom of Babylon? Or are you closer to the ideals of the nations gathered at the throne? Are you trying to live in the church of Acts 11, the church that says there's no border for us, there's no difference in culture or nation or heritage for us? Or are you closer to the people that say, no, it's just about me. Jesus came for me and, and I'm gonna be greedy and focus on me and focus on my protection, my stuff. Which side of this are you on? In a moment, we're gonna move to stations around the room. You can see they're set up at different tables. and There on the tables, you'll find bread and juice. And you can take the the bread and dip it in the juice. And we ask that anyone, any of you that consider yourself to be a part of this kingdom, consider yourself to be a Christian, a follower of Christ. we invite you to these tables to take the bread, which represents Jesus's body, which was broken for us on the cross, and dip it in the juice which represents his blood which was poured out for us so that our sins could be forgiven so that we could be brought into his family. And he asks us to do that in remembrance of him. And on that same night when Jesus did that, he gathered with his disciples and he prayed with them. He prayed this long, long prayer. But in that prayer, he begins to also pray about the Christians that would come. And he says, God, I pray not just for those with me now, but those that will come after them, those that will believe because of their word. And Jesus's prayer for us, for the Christians that would come in the future, he prays, God, let them be made one as you and I are one. So as we move to the table this morning, I ask you just to have that in your head. Are you one? Are we one? Are we living as people who wanna be one in Christ? One nation, one global nation under God, not restricted to borders, not restricted to rich or poor or slave or free or male or female. Are we living as one? And if not, maybe we just need to take a pause before we approach the communion table and just pray for some forgiveness, have a time of confession and say, God, I've gotten some things wrong in my life. I'm not living by the ideals of your kingdom and I know that needs to change. But this morning in this time, as we take communion, I'd ask you just to reflect, which are you closer to? Are you closer to the Tower of Babel or the throne of the Lamb in your everyday life, in the way you treat the people in your family, in your house, in your office, in your ideals, the way that that you live your life and make your decisions? Are you closer to the Tower of Babel or to the throne of the Lamb? Because at great expense, Jesus took that throne so that we could be there with him. Our job is to help other people to get there too. Let me pray for communion. God, I pray that uh, we would approach your communion table this morning with caution.